Hello everyone, Brian here. Um, just a quick introduction um, to our uh, episode here. We've got a candidate for Congress in New Jersey, R.T. Kreibig. Um, but just FYI, this was recorded several weeks ago um, before you know most of the coronavirus stuff and um, before Miss um, Kreibig was endorsed by Bernie Sanders and a number of other folks. So, you know, she seems to be getting a bit of momentum and, uh, you know, we're, we're uh, hoping the best for her campaign. Also, the, the uh, we, we had some uh, data problems in the production of this episode. And so the quality is quite a bit lower than uh, than you may be expecting. So apologies for that. But, you know, these things happen sometimes. So, yeah, at any rate, without further ado, uh, let's get going. Welcome back to Left Tanker. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Welcoming to the podcast, uh, I'm going to try my best here, Arti Krybik, who is a candidate for uh, Congress for the New Jersey uh, 5th District. Um, and we're, we're very pleased to, to have her on um, to, to talk about you know, her candidacy and, um, you know, what the deal is with, with New Jersey. So w- welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. And, um, you know, to, to get us started here, may- maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your background. I'm led to understand that, that you were not born in the United States, right? No, I wasn't. I came here as an immigrant when I was 11. Um, and I came to Queens, which is, I think, one of the best places to emigrate to. Um, yeah. We came, we came from India. My dad had come here a couple of years earlier to save up money and, and kind of bring my um, mom and my brothers and I over. Um, and I still very much remember, um, you know, even viscerally getting off the plane in JFK, trying to corral my younger brothers, you know, as they were helter skelter um and i remember exactly how excited i was um exactly how anxious i was and fearful um you know all of it in in one place because we were getting into this whole new world um and i also remember my youngest brother you know tugging at my hand and being annoying to me at the time <laughs> and saying things like <laughs> And saying things like, uh, you know, um, am I going to recognize what our dad looks like? Um, you know, and that, of course, as I got older, I, I understood quite what he was saying as, as an 11-year-old. That, you know, I just thought he was being pesky. Um, but no, I, I distinctly remember all of those emotions. And to an extent, I still feel them today. Yeah. And so... Um... If if I if I remember correctly, you you got into science and um, you know, and what what led you from you know, tell us about your sort of scientific career and how that how that's gone. But then, what led you from science into into politics? So I've always wanted to be a scientist, uh, as far as I can remember. I loved science, loved stories about science, you know, just found it to be really fascinating. And I can't pinpoint, you know, one particular moment or, you know, two moments where I decided this is what I was going to do. It just sort of unfolded. Um, And I didn't know quite what I was going to do until I went to college and really just fell in love with psychology and biology. And, you know, at the time that 
came together and into neuroscience, uh, found it fascinating. And the fact that we could really start looking at how the brain works, this was, you know, the golden era of, of brain biology at the time. And so I have a PhD in neuroscience. Um, I've done research in opiate addiction, stress, um, as well as you know, models of um, how stress and and drug addiction work in in animal models. I've also looked at animal models of social behavior, um, and I've been really fortunate to be able to give back in that way. It's been a great and fun science career. Um, I left academia and worked in the pharmaceutical industry for three years as a clinical educator. Um, and I knew that that is not what I wanted to do, um, <laughs> being in there. Um, I tried actually two different companies. And while I loved my teams there and I just really loved some of the people that I worked with, um, just really, you know, very smart people and trying to do good, I knew that that model, um, is just not the model that is helpful. This is not the model that we should have for drug development. This is not the model we should have for, um, you know, for, for innovation and for healthcare in particular. Um, and the more I stayed, the more I knew that was not um, the right thing to do. So I left. It's almost as if the, the human persons around you were good and the human persons that you were helping were good, but the corporate person a little less good, perhaps. That, that, that might have been uh, at the root of the issue. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and I just, you know, I kept thinking that you could separate the two or that, you know, somehow enough of the human persons were going to overcome that whole corporate issue. And I realized, you know, two and a half, three years into it, that it was never going to happen and that if change was going to happen for me anyway, it has to be from the outside. Um, and I really deeply disappointed <laughs> Um, in how the system works um, and the profit motive that really has to drive the industry because it does, right? And so to me, that's diametrically opposed to healthcare and to innovation in terms of drugs because I think that if you're trying to help people, profit motive has to take a backseat. Um, I mean, this is why I think the reasons why we have you know, innovative, in quote, <laughs> drugs that are really just patent extenders. It's yeah. All about the um, the, um, quick digression here before 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 we get into you know politics, I guess. Um, you know, I definitely agree with you in terms of like overemphasis on the profit motive. But you know, as you say, these uh, these drug patents, you know, the the way that we have incentivized you know profit, uh, you know, research and pharmaceuticals and so on is to say, okay, we'll give you a monopoly. The government will grant you a monopoly on this drug for 20 years whatever it is. Um, and then you can just soak the population at just the absolutely maximum price. Um, but that's not the only way you could use profits to, to, to incentivize that. You could say, you know, here's our government list of all the things that we want. Top of the list is antibiotics, you know, new ones. We need those very badly and say, okay, you get a new antibiotic and it passed through clinical trials that, by the way, you can't pay for, which is the current system for clear yeah. conflict of interest. And if you and if you do it, here's twenty billion dollars, boom, right off the bat. You know, it's like I think a reasonable amount of total profit you would get from the patent. And then that way, you just hand it off to a generics manufacturer and they stamp it out at cost, and um, you know everybody goes home happy. What do you think of that? 
you know, it's an interesting model. So how we would leverage, how we would be able to leverage things that I think we as a people need more of and be able to negotiate, negotiate that is really key. Um, plus in terms of generics, you know, we have a lot of folks like Teva, which is a big company, has a generic arm, right? And they have a non-generic arm as well. So a lot of the big pharmaceutical behemoths that we have um, do also um, dabble, I guess, <laughs> in some ways in generics. I think the patent game is, and I call it a game because that's how it's played in some ways, right? And yeah. So the, so the game now is... Because so, for example, you know, with Medicare um, not being able to <laughs> negotiate the drug prices, you know, things are completely hobbled uh, for the federal government. And, you know, where is the leverage in that, for example? Um, but you also have this patent game. So you have this, you know, 17 years. And then what folks are trying to do are or pharmaceutical companies are trying to reformulate that into an extended release or, you know, another way of taking that drug and then you know, um, basically extending that patent um, yeah. over over years. Um, and, you know, to me, that leverage of being able to work with drug companies just doesn't exist right now, at least not to the right extent. So one of the things that I did, well, what, what I wanted to do, so I thought, so I was academia, um, then I went and worked with pharmaceutical companies, and I thought, okay, well, both of these are not perfect models, right? Academia... We have a lot of basic research. Um, but sometimes moving on to translation is hard. We have, so I thought, okay, great. We're in, in pharmaceutical companies. We're doing drug development that are, you know, a little bit closer to clinical. But then I realized, well, hmm, you're not actually talking about the right things or prioritizing, you know, human health in the way you need to. So then, you know, maybe I'll go into the nonprofit sector and try and bring the two things together. And I think there's space there um, for patient-led you know, innovation. I was a director of research programs for a small nonprofit that was looking, that is still looking for a cure for uh, musc Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, and I think a model, you know, there where you're bringing together patient needs, where you're bringing together um, pharmaceutical companies, when you're bringing together government to try and, you know, really get to the gap that's there. You know, I think is, is the best that we can do right now um, in the kind of world that we live in. But I think we're missing the chance. We're missing the chance for our government to set the priorities of human health. So we have and to leverage them, as you pointed out, uh, with drug companies so that we can actually have innovation in the kinds of things that we need innovation. Um, yeah. And we see that now with COVID-19 and vaccines and testing that needs to be done. Um, and, and we need to have a place for rigorous oversight from the government for these things. So I just was reading about this morning about, um, you know, one of the rapid tests, I think Abbott has a rapid test that's out that's 15 minutes for COVID-19. It's only something like 85% effective or accurate. And, um, 85% accurate is problematic, but it's widespread. And, you know, we really need a lot more rigor and we really need a lot more oversight into these things, um, especially now in the middle of a pandemic crisis. Yeah. Um, so maybe back on track, <clears throat> would you say what was it your uh, your scientific sort of disillusionment, would you say, that led you to politics or, or was it things in addition to that, you know, looking around at the just absolute monstrous failure that is the, you know, status quo healthcare system, you know, we're, we're all getting our faces ground in how horrible that is. Um, 
but uh, you know the inequality and so on does the, is that an inspiration to you you know all of it i think it's all of the above so what happened was as i was going through life thinking you know this is the way of doing this you know this is the way of making the system better and understanding how terrible this systems are the various different systems that I thought were you know going to help and work um, at least from you know because I got into science thinking I was going to help make the world a better place and I really believed in that and I still do um, I then tried to understand why some of these things weren't being implemented and I realized there were all these systems set up in place um, that were stopping that from happening limiting that from happening but the but the galvanizing event really was, the 2016 election. Um, you know, for me, it was shocking and devastating. I will honestly say I did not see that coming. I did not see that Trump was going to be elected. I really nope. might sound naive, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, me, I mean, me neither, you know, and that's my job, you know. <laughs> you weren't the only one, that's for sure. Yeah, and, you know, um, the day of the election, so... I've always been politically interested, right? We lived in Pennsylvania. We lived in Philadelphia for many years. It's a swing state. Um, you can't help but be bombarded by lots of politics. Um, and, you know, a reasonably intelligent person who is interested in the world, I think, you know, is interested and in, in, in informed in some way, shape or form in politics. And, and you know, I did things like yelling at the TV and having arguments with my friends and, you know, discussing <laughs> things with my husband. Um and also knocking on doors for presidential candidates. You know, we, we did a bit of that. Um, and so the day of the 2016 election, uh, you know, my kids are eight and 11, were eight and 11 at the time. Um, and we were really excited about what we thought was going to happen. Um, I went door knocking with them in Pennsylvania. Um, all of us wearing matching pantsuits and knocked on doors to get out the vote. Um, and we came back to what we thought was going to be a celebration clearly was not the case um Oof. and it was yeah that's right it was devastating to try and explain that to my kids i could not understand it myself so it was even harder to try and you know figure out how to how to make sense of it they couldn't make sense of it and they were looking at me you know you dragged us all over the place we worked so hard for this person that we thought was going to be president and it you know, this is not what's happened. And, and, and the alternative was so terrible, right? Um, and in the weeks, days and weeks afterwards, uh, we saw these spikes in hate crimes. We saw people in the community feeling much more vulnerable. Um, and this feeling of dread um, cast a pal, I think, pal all over um, our community or parts of it. Um, and for me, um, my eight-year-old was very worried, and I remember <laughs> this distinctly, um, you know, him coming up to me and really worried, um, worried for me and worried for my parents, um, and, you know, he was wondering whether I was going to be his mom anymore in America, whether I was going to be deported because Trump was doing all these things, um, and whether my parents, his grandparents, were going to be much more targeted than they were before. Um, and that was wrenching as a parent, as, as somebody who really thought she had made a place for herself in this country. Um, yeah. No, I, I'm, uh, uh, I'm first generation myself and, and it's, um, 
it, it it's still just so jarring to see. I mean, even look, uh, at least dog whistle racism was slightly less violent insofar as the people that might have been spurred onto violence didn't quite get activated like they are now. Um, but but it never ceased to amaze me how often I would see um, such such hatred and and just uh, ignorant. Um, I don't know. It's 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 a it's a very upsetting thing, and there's there's more and more over the years that we're seeing that just seems so hard to process, and yet calling out all the more for action. So I can imagine how that that must have um, affected you, and and uh, and I don't know what, what was that kind of the, the the last straw that 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 thought that got you to to want to actually uh, get yeah. involved in running for office. It was. It was. It was the event that made me think and say that I had to do a lot more than I was doing before. And it was the. It was the event that you know because for me it was less about my child at the time. You know, I was able to comfort him and say, you know, this is not. I, of course, I'm still going to be here and, and and all of that. And and I could say that truthfully, but it was the fact that if my child was feeling that way, there were so many other children whose parents couldn't comfort them truthfully. Right. And there were so many other people in our community who were just, who were more vulnerable because, you know, either because of the way they looked or, or how they sounded or who they loved. And I, I just, I didn't want to be in a world where I wasn't doing more (laughs) to combat that. So that was the initial, I think, galvanizing event for me. I, you know, are organized, um, like a lot of suburban women, I think, uh, you know, we organized, um, had grassroots groups. And to me, I really felt like if I was going to enact change at a local level, I had to do that through political office. Um, and I had never thought about that before. Um, but I decided to, if I was going to preach this, then I should be <laughs> modeling this, um. And so I did. I, I ran for council in my town. Um, and initially, no one really thought I was going to win. Um, but I felt it was important to take that stand. And I felt it was important to say, these are my values. This is where I think we should be as a community. And we were able to bring together a group of volunteers, a group of supporters, um, and you know, I was able to outwork folks and, uh, I was able to win, which was great. <laughs> um, <laughs> Amazing. Um, How, what, what was the secret to overcoming the, the odds that you thought were long? Uh, really just outworking people, knocking on doors and having conversations. And is is this the type of thing, was this like a primary only type of thing, like a real heavily democratic type of type of race? No. So this was a race for council. It's a partisan race. I was I think um, I definitely leaned into being a Democrat. Um, You know, I was part of a ticket with an incumbent um, Democrat. Um, She and I were both. Uh, you know, I was obviously the new one uh, competing for a seat, um, and we were we went against two Republican women um, who had been in town for you know something like 20 years average each. So they had you know well established um, community. Um, so it, it was a general election, um, and you know it's a, it's a small town council uh, race, which is why usually folks you know 
would not anticipate that that somebody like me would win. Um, I, but I think it was just being able to have the kinds of conversations I was able to have um, and being able to really just knock on doors and tell people who I was and why I thought this was really important um, and being able to be my authentic self. And I think that was that was the secret. <laughs> um, and if that's the same thing that I'm bringing to the you know primary now. We were not a heavily democratic town. Um, I think we are. I think at the time we were slightly less Democrat than Republicans. It was 20. So I was campaigning in 2017. Um, and we and like in much of New Jersey, uh, we have more folks who are unaffiliated with either party than you know uh, identify as or register as uh, a Democrat or Republican. Um, so sort of a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, so so now you're uh, jumping up a little bit higher, you know, into the, the big leagues, you might say. Um, tell us about the fifth district. You know, where, where is this located in New Jersey? Um, you know, what what sorts of folks live there? You know, where, where are the major population centers, that, that kind of thing? Yeah. So. The fifth district is gerrymandered, um, to nobody's surprise, I'm sure. Um, of course. It is, it, it goes east to west from, say, the end of the George Washington Bridge. Um, so if you're imagining closer to New York City, it's up in the north. Um, and then if you sort of take a strip going west from, you know, New York City, uh, border all the way up to the Pennsylvania border, it'd be sort of this top strip. So, and it has parts of four counties. The biggest county that is in NJ5 is Bergen County, uh, which is uh, suburban, essentially. Um, you don't have huge cities. Uh, we have smaller ones um, and smaller towns that kind of run into each other. Um, and then we have a couple of towns in Passaic County. And then the more rural counties are Suffolk and Warren. Um, and they tend to be a little bit more red, which is sort of the lore. Um, and, you know, they go out west up to Pennsylvania. So if you sort of imagine the top hat, you know, top strip in, in New Jersey, that's, that's NJ5. So what we have are a mix of suburban as well as rural voters. Um, and it's been, it's an interesting dynamic because until 2016, we had a very conservative, a Tea Party conservative as our Congress member. Um, and it was pretty awful. Um, I really wanted him gone for many years. Um, and in 2016, the glimmer of hope that I had in that election was the fact that, okay, so the national election is completely devastating, but at least we flipped the fifth. At least now we have a Democrat in power. You know, we finally flipped it. We finally got rid of this horrible <laughs> Tea Party dude. This is great. Uh-oh. Right. Uh, I, I see. Right. I see. Lu- Lucy. Lucy with the football is coming. I can feel it. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. That's that's perfect. Actually. Um. No. That's exactly what happens. So this guy that you know, uh, who I supported in 2016. He was like my. He was my first non-presidential lawn sign that I had on my lawn. Um. I thought he was gonna be fighting for us. Um. And I reluctantly supported him in 2018 because I thought we had to keep this district blue. Um, but there's a reason why I'm now primarying him in 2020. Who? What's his name? His name is Josh Gottheimer. That's the one. I, I knew it was going to be him. I, I It's like, I you know, I don't, you know, I, I'm an uncultured swine. I don't pay much attention to New Jersey politics, but I knew there was one guy in New Jersey, the Gottheimer guy. <laughs> 
And yeah, boy, you are right about that. He, I mean, you know, it was so interesting, right? So I thought he was going to be fighting for us. I really thought, great, he's going to come out. And I remember his very first vote, I think it was January 4th, 2017. I was befuddled and disappointed. He was one of a handful of Democrats who voted with the majority of Republicans to roll back Obama-era regulations on the environment and health. Very first vote. Absolutely no reason for him to have voted that way. Zero. Well, you got to think about his post-Congress career. You know, right. how is he going to have a consulting gig? If you, you know, was Exxon Mobil chair waiting for him. It was, I mean, it was baffling, right? You know, I had like, I had really been excited about this. And I was like, what, what's going on? You know, and so I was like, all right, well, maybe I'm just being naive about the whole thing. He feels like he needs to pacify because, you know, the district overall had gone to Trump plus one. Um, you know, there was a lot of fear. And I thought, OK, that's it. But it, that wasn't just the one vote. Right. It was just a series of votes. The series, the way he's actually uh, tried to govern or, or not govern. So he's voted for things like border wall funding. He's voted to gut Dodd-Frank regulations. Um, and it keeps getting worse and worse. I mean, as recently as, you know, January, he voted against the Iran war powers resolution. Yeah. It, you know, at, at some point you have to not believe it's 20, 20 dimensional chess anymore. And you just have to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's and, and so to me, you know, like, so as he was doing this in 2016, I, you know, and, you know, at this point, as an activist, as a member of the grassroots um, group, as somebody who was, you know, as a state party and running for, for council, I had gotten to know him a little. Um, and so with some of the votes, you know, I would reach out and say, you know, through official channels or otherwise, like, what is going on? Like, you know, why, this is not where you should be voting. Right. Um, and it, there was no there was no acknowledgement. There was no. You know, there was just there was just all I got from him was that this is the right thing to do. Um, and I thought he really believed that this, these were the policies. And I think he still does, that these are the right policies. Um, so he's not just a, he claims that he's a moderate, but he's not. He's not a moderate. He's one of, the, I think, ranked fourth or fifth most conservative Democrat. And then I started looking at our district, um, particularly, you know, post-2016, right? So the lore was, OK, the district is really red. Like, this is the only way you can govern. And then I started looking at the numbers because I'm a scientist and I started looking at, you know, what was happening with those of us who were organizing. And I realized this is not true. So we've been trending blue since 2014. As of now, in 2020, we are solidly blue. We have more, I think, about 8000 more Democrats registered than we have Republicans registered. So we have gone this registration advantage is weighted Democrat. Um, and definitely it's gone quite a bit more to the to the left gone quite a bit bluer since 2014 and definitely since 2016 so he won in 2016 with two points he won in 2018 um and he won in 2018 again because this loose you know coalition of 20 plus grassroots groups that's an nj5 and that includes the group that i started we got together and we said we have to keep the seat blue and we knocked on something like 30,000 doors for him collectively. Uh, we came out, we did postcards, we did everything that we possibly could, right? Um, and he won with four, 14 points. 
Wow. Swing. Right. <laughs> so at that point, you can't call this a red district anymore. Yeah. Um, it, well, it, I mean, it, it's it sort of goes to the 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 theory. You know, I mean, he did win, but he won with the support of all these lefty groups who like don't like support his substantive agenda, but just see him as like the only game in town. But when you do, as you say, you know, you drill down into these policies, like what even conservative people, nobody is saying, yeah, let's roll back regulations on the banks. That's what I like to hear about. You know, like that's a that's a thing that lobbyists ask for. This is not a grassroots anything, even in red districts. Um, and, you know, similarly with Iran, you know, who wants like, you know, no. Nobody outside of like, you know, sort of Israel lobby and neoconservatives are out there saying, yeah, let's let's ratchet up tensions with Iran. Let's get in another uh, ground war in Asia, <laughs> you know, like and and so is your theory that like, you know, the kind of uh, suburban and, and rural like sort of like squishy moderates or unaffiliated type of people actually have an appetite for more substantively progressive policy than just like, you know, tr trying to say half a loaf of whatever the Republicans say, and that's moderation. Absolutely. I mean, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I firmly believe in this. And I think the proof is, is I get the proof every time I have conversations with voters, with the residents in this district. Look, it's clear that his policies are set by lobbyists. It's clear that his policies are set by special interests. Um, he, his nickname that he embraces is the human fundraising machine. <laughs> <laughs> Democracy, <Right>? isn't it great? <laughs> exactly. I mean, he is, I think he is the number two recipient of funds from the Wall Street real estate sector. Um, he is behind Kevin McCarthy and head of Paul Ryan. Wow. Right. Well, congratulations to him. That's really impressive. I mean, honestly, like, that's a high bar to clear. Right. I mean, you must have you know, very voluminous pockets. I, you know, there, there, there's a nice VIP room waiting for him in one of the circles of hell. I forget which. Right. <laughs> right. So to uh, me, this is, you know, clearly when this is where the, you know, the funding is coming from, when this is the paramount importance to the campaign, um, this is, you're not representing the people. Right. And so you can see that in the issues um, that you basically steer clear of. I mean, he refuses. And I have had this actually personal conversation with him where right before he was elected. Um, so in 2018, I actually had a big get out the vote rally for him in my backyard. I went door knocking for him with him um, reluctantly. But I was like, no, we're keeping this blue. Um, I don't want this you know, Tea Party to come back in here. Um, clearly, obviously, that's not happening for the primary this year. But I had a conversation with him. And this was right after the IPCC report had come out, you know, a few months after that. Um, and I said, you know, look, this is a very conservative estimate of how much time we have. It says 12 years, but that means less than 10 years. You're the co-chair of the so-called, you know, problem solvers caucus that you tout everywhere you go. Um, you know, I challenge you to make climate change the top issue that you talk about, because if ever you need bipartisan support on anything right it's this and yep. <laughs> he was not happy that i challenged him and i suggested that and clearly that went really nowhere fast right We've, we haven't heard anything about that 
Um, and you know, he, what he says about things like a green new deal is that it's not going anywhere. And that is the complete opposite of what we should be talking about. He refuses to use the phrase climate change when he's talking to constituents in our district. He's a Democrat. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it reminds me of the line, uh, that Warren said to John Delaney in the, in the Democrat debate, seems like 10 years ago now, uh, about, uh, well, you know, I just don't understand somebody who's who's running to tell people what you can't do and you shouldn't fight for. Exactly. Exactly. I remember actually that line from the debate. I remember going, yes, that. That's like, why, why limit? Well, unfortunately, yeah. that, that applies to like most of the Democrats these days, unfortunately. And so, I mean, what what's encouraging, though, is to see. You know, you're your own person. You have your history and, and your expertise and so many things that motivate you in particular. But uh, a, a young, brilliant person with moral courage reminds me of people like, you know, the squad, frankly, and, and, and people like Rokana and, uh, um, you know, uh, so many young uh, people in Congress who have not just good leftist politics who are who are willing to to say no it's actually better if we have medicare for all it's actually better and necessary to have a green new deal but are willing to fight for it even if it's not guaranteed to pass which these things hardly ever are they're they're impossible until they were inevitable right exactly right and i think the fact that you put these artificial limits on i think they're only there to make sure that Congress members like my like my opponent right now um, stays in power for longer. I think that's all that's about. <laughs> to me, that yep, is not the yep. job. The job is to represent the people and to do the best you can to make lives better for everyday people. That's the yeah. job of government. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like instead of, instead of having a jobs program for people good at fundraising, we should have public servants who actually help the people. <laughs> Crazy, yeah, wow. crazy idea. But you this... know, here's the thing. Like you, you were asking me about, you know, whether this is my thesis and, you know, how, like, how am I going about talking about this? This is exactly what resonates, right? So I told you in Glenrock, you know, back in the day, and I think it's still true. Um, we have about, I think now we have about equivalent, or maybe it's like we have a registration edge to Democrats, um, just like we do in in NJ5. So it's a microcosm. Um, in NJ5, we have more Democrats than we have Republicans. But the thing is. The most voters, um, you know, are are unaffiliated. And the reason they're unaffiliated is because politics, especially the perception of Jersey politics, is that it sucks. Right. Right. It's corrupt (laughs) or you're never going to get anywhere. And so why bother being part of a party or not? And those are the people, particularly in the general election. Right. That we need to get out, that we need to make sure that they're excited um, and that they come out and vote because if they don't, the whole, we're never keeping the seat. We're not keeping it blue. We're, you know, it's none of the things that we're fighting for, um, or even, you know, inching towards are going to get done. And so when I talk to folks who are unaffiliated, what they're excited about is somebody who's out there who has principles, morals, and values and stands for them. I've literally had conversations where folks have come up to me and say, look, I may not agree on everything that you say. But I believe that you're going to be honest about it. I believe that you stand for your values. And so I believe you when you are going to work for me, especially right. because you're not taking corporate PAC money and you're not taking fossil fuel money. And you know that part, that cuts across all party lines. Yeah. So 
this gets maybe to my my next question. Uh, um, you know, supposing let, let's uh, let's let's be generous here. Say you win the primary and go on to win the general election. Um, what is your sort of like theory about what the next Congress should be doing? And let's say also that Joe Biden uh, wins the the uh, presidential election. Um, uh, maybe not a Gottheimer type of figure, but definitely a, a definitely a sort of middle of the road, like let's not rock the boat type of of uh, politician. Um, what do you what do you think Congress should be doing uh, in, you know, as the, the next Congress starts in uh, January uh, 2021? Yeah. At the end of the day, regardless of what was happening in 2021, we have not just a huge mess to clean up, but a lot of things to repair. Look, things weren't perfect before Trump got on board. I mean, if they were, he wouldn't have been president uh, in so many ways. But we right. have an opportunity to rebuild the system, to make it more equitable for everybody. And I firmly believe that, particularly with the pandemic crisis that we're going through. And look, I'm in Bergen County, New Jersey. We have we are worst hit in New Jersey um, in terms of COVID-19. I think uh, the figures in our county um, that I saw as of yesterday or this morning were something like 12,000 cases um, with unfortunately over 650 people um, died. And um, that's you know, for, for our community, it's devastating um, what we're going through. It's, it's not, you know, we're, we're not that far behind New York City. So we are going through this pandemic crisis along with the rest of the United States. And the way we're going to come out of this is not to be hasty about, you know, reopening America. Um, it's going to be making sure that we are helping the people that we're concentrating our relief efforts on the people. And I think we have people in Congress who are going to focus on science and data in terms of creating policy, and that we're going to be advocating and implementing policies that are going to make us more resilient in the future, right? And to me, that only happens when you rebuild the system to be more equitable. That means things like a stronger social safety net. I can't begin to tell you how many conversations I've had with folks who before the pandemic weren't quite sure about Medicare for all, having either had their hours cut or lost their jobs um, or have had, unfortunately, a loved one sick, they are much more willing to have that conversation about Medicare for all now. And unfortunately, this is not the way I wish that was happening, but I think that the kinds of things that we've been fighting for for a long time, I mean, people are really understanding and seeing the value of those um, social safety nets now. Yeah, I mean, it's been an object lesson in the the falsity of the line that you know if you if you like your insurance you can keep it you know mm -hmm. under the status quo it's like no you can't you you could lose it if you get fired or if your boss decides to change the coverage plan um, or if a global pandemic strikes and there's a Great Depression levels of unemployment um, and and so but on the on the question of like you know the there's there's sort of like two camps, it seems like, uh, you know, you, you, in, in the Democratic Party in Congress, you, you have the leadership, which seems, uh, you know, frankly, allergic to wielding power. You know, they, they in the last coronavirus bill, you know, they didn't put forward their own plan and say, take it or leave it. 
you know, uh, they negotiated from the Republican position and, you know, the bill was I mean, it had a lot of decent stuff in it, but it was like not clearly insufficient and, um, you know, had a lot of like, frankly, corrupt stuff in there. Um, and so, you know, there's another faction, which is much smaller, I would say, you know, in the sort of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, you know, you have AOC yeah. and the rest of the squad and so on. That's arguing that you need to like hold the government's feet to the fire. And that's true, whether it's a Republican president or a Democratic president, you know, you know, you need to like sort of try to push things in the right direction and not pre compromise to, uh, you know, estimate what you think will pass before, you know, we we've even started negotiating. Um, So, you know, where would you sort of land on that spectrum between, you know, the kind of like milk toast like status quo bias or the like, let's like push for what we can get. Uh, and to be, to be fair, Ryan, on the other hand, if you pre-compromise, you might end up with a lot of ice cream in your freezer. I'm just saying that's something <laughs> to consider. Yeah, that is true. It just depends on what kind of ice cream. So, you know, there's that too. Um, <laughs> no, absolutely. I think that we should be, we should be asking for what we need and then some. We should not be pre-compromising. We should not be acting as if we have no power at all. I mean, as Democrats, as progressives, we are working on behalf of the people, and we should act like it. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and you know, Ryan, we've talked about this before, but the idea that to be prudent is to be incrementalist is, is just nonsense. I mean, especially with the pandemic, especially with climate change, especially with uh, so many crises that we're in the midst of, it's actually the safer, more risk averse move to do radical, big, huge things now. And that's something that I think people will understand as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's negligent and I think it's completely reckless that we don't have substantive action, like conversations I'm tired of, you know, in, in talking about Green New Deal and talking about how our healthcare system is broken and talking about, you know, what we need to do enact reform. The fact that we haven't taken substantive action on climate change is shameful. The fact that we haven't taken substantive action to really go forward with fixing a broken healthcare system is beyond embarrassing. I mean, it's costing us lives. And so if this is not what's going to get us to galvanize and unite as a party uh, on behalf of our people, I'm not sure what is. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, the, the long-term strategic danger that I see is that you just sort of do a repeat of the Obama presidency. Like, suppose Biden comes in and he, you know, just on pure, uh, you know, disgust with Trump, wins the House and the Senate. But then Democrats proceed to, you know, pull their horns in and not really deal with the, you know, crises. And you end up in 2022 with the economy still on its back and Republicans win a sweeping victory. They take the House, maybe the Senate again. And then now you can't do anything. And it seems like there's a, there there may be an opportunity in 2021 to, you know, break the filibuster in the Senate and, you know, ju- just take a, you know, sort of frantic uh, clean up all the messes and try to ensure the Democrats uh, are not blamed 
by for not fixing all the problems, you know, which they will be. You know, that's what happens. What's it's what happened in 2010. Right. So just on the on the moral merits, on the policy merits and on just the cynical political merits, like you can't just let this stuff fester, um, you know, because you're going to get swept out in the next election. Right. Absolutely. So here, you know, my perspective on that, and this is why I think we need every single seat in Congress, whether you're a House or Senate, to make sure it can be as progressive as possible, in my opinion. Um, so to me, you know, when I look at it in terms of 2020, you're, you're exactly right. This is an opportunity that we had. And for me, it's, look, the Democrats, if they win everything, they're going to be blamed anyway. So why not? Why not take that opportunity to be as bold as possible, to help as many people as possible? And guess what? You might be really surprised by actually gaining ground. Uh, and I don't mean that just politically, but I mean actually helping Actually people. helping people. Actually <laughs> helping people for once. Yeah, yes. that'd be great. <laughs> I, You know, I have, I have a last question, especially seeing that you're a neuroscientist. Uh, when, when you see Trump and Biden... And, you know, I, I got to, you know, you're running as a, as a Democrat, so I would be careful here. But uh, what is it more distressing to think about the fact that they um, are not, let's say, as good as we need to be to help the people, whether it's on immigration, whether it's on climate change, whether it's on, you know, hashtag me too. Uh, is that more upsetting and motivating or, or is it the fact that these, these old guys, even, you know, even when their brains were functioning properly, uh, weren't the best representatives of the people? I, I just, I just wonder, uh, maybe what you're thinking in terms of how the youth could maybe save us from these old, old decrepit men whose brains don't seem to me, the, the laymen, the laymen, uh, not functioning as they should. So I think that um, people in power will continue to be in power and groups in power will continue to be in power until the rest of the people rise up and demand better. And if we want better leaders, we need to start at ground zero. We need to start at the local level. We need to start at the congressional level and we need to keep going. And am I... Uh, disappointed in some ways by who the representatives are? Yes. Um, do I still think one is a clearly a better choice than the other? Absolutely. Um, because, what's, yeah. because what's the most chilling to me is this really dangerous and insidious um, culture of fake news and subverting yeah. truth. And that yeah. is what yeah, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, this this pandemic is especially bringing that to the fore, isn't it? Yeah. Just. Yeah, it's true. You know, we're <laughs> you can't propaganda your way out out of a out of a pandemic. Um, yeah. My 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 hope with Biden is that, you know, uh, he has been a political opportunist for his whole career. And, and I would hope that he could still, you know, see the writing on the wall and and where things should be headed. You know, I mean, that's pretty much the only hope you can ask for. Um, we're running short of time here, I guess. I know you've got to head out soon. Um, but can you tell folks um, where they can go to, to read up more, uh, donate money, um, all that sort of thing? Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm on all social media um, as well as on the website. And my website is arthy4congress.com. And arthy is spelled A-R-A-T-I. Great. 
Um, yeah. Oh, and when is the when is the primary? Well, the primary now is July seventh. Okay. okay. So lots of time. And other instructions that are easily available for people to figure out how to vote absentee. Um, well, yes, uh, we are working. On, <laughs> we're working on that. We're working to push for an all vote by mail um, election. Um, so we're hoping that that's the case. But yes, vote by mail efforts. And, and so in, in New Jersey, it's a two step process. You have to apply for the ballot and then the okay. ballot comes and then, you know, there's a whole thing. And so we have instructions on that on our website as well. And uh, we'll be encouraging that. Great. Well, well th- thank you so much for everything you're doing. It's really in, in these dark times, it's inspiring to, to see morally courageous, brilliant, capable and really, frankly, delightful people like yourself um, part, being part of the leftward push. To, to, to do what we can to have a little bit of hope and, and to to bring from the ground up some actual fighting for, for the people and what we all need. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, and thank you for being in this fight. Uh, it's it's so important that we all do everything that we possibly can. And um, I really appreciate this opportunity. Great. Kreibik, the um we'll link to everything in the description. Um Good luck against that Gottheimer guy. Get him. That's what I said. <laughs> we plan yes, to. Admit, after you win, come back on and, and tell us all about it. That is yeah. a promise. That is a promise. <laughs> Thank you so awesome. much. And thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.